so excited to see you all this morning. Uh, so if you are just now joining us this morning, I just want to say welcome. My name is Justin. I am one of the pastors here. And we have been exploring, uh, basically, we've been going through Paul's letter in Thessalonians. Uh, now, I also apologize. My daughter brought home a little uh, little daycare bug, uh, which moved into my sinuses. So it's not COVID. Just want to reassure you there, but I'm going to feel a little stuffy this morning. Um, but we've been going through basically Paul's letter to the Thessalonians church. Why I've been so excited about this letter and why I'm so excited to, um, and I know I'm, I say I'm always excited, but I am, I'm excited to go through this letter with you, um, partly because of the sheer like sincerity and authenticity that Paul offers in this letter. Okay, so, so this letter is one of, I, we think, probably the earliest New Testament document that we have. It's the earliest letter that Paul writes. Why this is beautiful and why this is worth um, spending time in is because this letter in particular uh, is this sort of like firsthand account, like first view of like what church is. So we don't even think that, that church has made its way, oh, Christianity probably hasn't even made its way to Rome just yet. Like it's probably just now moving out of Jerusalem into Thessalonica, where Paul is writing a letter to this very, very early group of Christians. So, so, so why this is so beautiful to me is like, this is sort of like your, your raw sort of firsthand, like first look, authentic account of what it means to be a church. Like it's the first time really we have in the ancient world, one of the first times in the ancient world, we have that word church showing up. When Paul says church, it's one of the first times after Jesus has died and been raised from the dead that we hear this word being used to describe this group of people who have come together from very different walks of life, very different backgrounds, very different spaces, who are loved and who are seen and who are forgiven, who care and who are saved by God. Like it's the first moment that we see Paul say, this is who you are as those redeemed by God, church. Why this is so significant, why I'm so excited to do this is because us as a brand new young church, like one of the questions I want to ask is like, what does that mean? So when you say, I go to restore, it's my church, it's where my money goes, it's where I serve, it's like where my friends are. What is it that we're saying in that? Well, I think Thessalonians is actually a beautiful, real picture of what it means to be church. Because the church in Thessalonica is young. It's brand new. They're asking a similar question. And so this morning, uh, in particular, we're going to be looking at Paul's going to address, really for the first time, uh, sin in the community. So, so, so that word sin, particularly for modern people, kind of has like a bunch of baggage with it, right? Um, sin for modern people, uh, we, we've usually heard it preached a couple of different ways in the past. And so a lot of us are often reluctant to engage with that word. Um, for some of us, sin has been used very abusively, like it's been used to sort of shame and condemn and get us to feel um, like dirty and wrong. And like, like the, 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 the focus of, of talking about sin has been sort of to persuade you not to do it by trying to show you how awful and filthy it is. 
And so, so, so for many of us, we're like, we're reluctant to engage um, in the conversation, often because of how we've seen it mistaught or maybe misused uh, in the past. And so Paul is going to talk about sin, like he's going to address sin with his church. Like it's a word, like we can't, like I can't, I didn't write the letter of Thessalonica. Like part of, part of my heart is I want to preach the full counsel of God to you, which is why we often do books. Like we just move through the whole book. But Paul's going to talk about two things uh, that often get used um, and, and we often feel either apprehensive over it. It feels uh, manipulative to us or, or we just don't want to engage it. And he's going to talk about both of those things this morning. He's going to talk about sin and he's going to talk about God's judgment on sin. But, but I want to emphasize here something very quickly before we get started. Uh, Paul's point here, as we move into this discussion, isn't to try and get them to see like how, uh, like he's not trying to get them to see all of the wrong that they're doing. In fact, what he's actually trying to do is get them to see the life that is readily available to them in Jesus. And what he's going to do is he's going to try and shift their focus so that they see that sin actually fractures their relationships with one another and their relationships with Jesus. And so Paul's going to take an approach um, much more like this. He's going to say sin is a poison that you've been drinking because you're not quite convinced you can trust the goodness of God. Let me tell you that you can. And if you'll put it down for just a second, you will be able to see the life that Jesus is offering you. And so as we move through the text this morning, uh, one of the things that Paul's going to do, let me read it for us very quickly, um, but I just want to preface it with that. So, so it's a hard topic, it's not a fun topic necessarily, and yet I'm absolutely convinced that if we understand sin, we actually understand a big part of our own souls, and there's liberation, and there's freedom, and there's joy in that. Okay, so, so, so understanding sin, again, like Paul's point in none of his letters is ever to leave them with this sense of condemnation. He writes in Romans where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. Like his point is, as we understand our sin, what happens is we understand our need for God. And as you understand your need for God and the wholeness that he offers you, you will find this freeing and liberating. The words that Paul will actually use in this part of his letter are, you will find joy and you will find peace. So, so let me read the, the first part of the letter for us and then we'll get started this morning. We're going to be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 uh, and we're going to be starting in verse 1. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. 
And in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or a sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins as we, are t- as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who inject, rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Let me pray for us and we'll get started this morning. Well, Father, for these next few minutes as we gather around your word, um, we're looking for life. Uh, and when we look for life, that means we're looking for you. So, Father, would you show us yourself? Would you show us your goodness? and your mercy. Father, would you show us your spirit this morning? We need you desperately. Father, I need you, and our people need you. Our children need you. Our community needs you desperately. So, Father, would you show us um, how to see you this morning? Would you show us your love for us? Would you convict? Would you set free? Would you help us to find a new sense of joy and peace in knowing you? We love you, God. We pray all of these things in your name. Amen. Okay, so, so let's start with how he starts the letter. Starting in verse 1, Paul says, As for matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus Christ to do this more and more. Okay, so, so that, that intro sounds like Paul's using a lot of flowerly sort of religious language. He's, he's talking about in Jesus Christ, um, I want you to live pleasing to God. Um, but there's a couple of things that Paul's just mentioned here that are quite new to them. So the first thing that he's done when he says, I want you to live uh, uh, pleasing to God, these people in the ancient world, very similar actually to the way that we are, um, had this idea that they could live to please God, like they wanted to please the gods often. What was entirely foreign or new to them was that the way to live to please God was living in love, in his love for them, and as letting it shape their love for one another. This is entirely new. So, so many of the gods in the ancient world in particular uh, were petty and not necessarily even moral. Like many of the gods would quarrel with one another. And so if you lived to please your God, that didn't necessarily mean that your God had like the best interest of everyone around in mind. Many of the gods were petty and they would fight with themselves. This, I think, is actually, believe it or not, like we kind of think as modern people, we've moved past this idea. Um, but I actually think many of us still insist that like for us to please our God means somehow that we have to become less desirable to the people around us. Like more objectionable. Okay, so, so, so there are parts of that people will object to. Okay, that's not what I'm saying. That's not going to happen. But many people, often when I hear people um, wanting to sort of use God as a, as a point, like they use it as leverage. Like I want to justify my political views, my, my, like the way that I'm treating you or the way that I'm speaking to you right now or the way that I'm commenting on this Facebook post, right? Like, and if I can convince you or show you that God's behind me in this, like it can justify some of the way that I'm mistreating or treating you poorly, 
This is very similar to how the, 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 Thessalon, the Thessalonians were used to the ideas of gods. Like they were all um, sort of trying to compete with one another, and your God kind of gave you social leverage over other people, right? And so like your goal was to try and figure out which God gave you the most leverage and then live pleasing to that God. So Paul's using, when he uses that word, I want you to live a life pleasing to God, he's actually using language that they're familiar with. I want you to live a life that is pleasing to God. But here's, here's, where, here's where this goes radically different than what they're used to. He says, in the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, this is Paul's primary way in all of your New Testament that he uses to describe our relationship with Jesus. Believe it or not is something that you are in Jesus Christ. And we've been talking about this um, over the last couple of weeks in Thessalonians. Paul will start by describing God in relational terms. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. These three, Paul sees as existing in this relationship of love with one another. So, so many of us have heard uh, teachings on Trinity. Uh, and one of the things that Paul does not do when he tries to help them see and understand Trinity, uh, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is he doesn't try to explain it to them intellectually. He's all like, let me show you. It's like a little bit like ice, water. and like He's not trying to use intellectual arguments to get them to grasp the Trinity. What he wants to do is he wants, to start, wants them to start seeing God relationally and lovingly. The Father exists because of the Son. The Son exists because of the Father. Both of those exist in a loving relationship of faithful obedience towards one another. And from their love from one another, the Spirit flows forth as a gift to the people of God. He wants them to see God as a relationally loving God. He's trying to open up their ideas to the idea that it is no longer, like you following God is no longer about like you leveraging a better place in the world. You living a life that is pleasing to this relationally loving God is learning to be in him. He uses this language in him. And I know it's, it's confusing for us and it feels flowery. What Paul's trying to describe, this is like the first time this, is ever, like this kind of language is ever being used. What Paul is trying to describe is this relationship in which God is loving, this loving union that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit all have with one another. You are now participating in this. This is now a reality in which you live. And so as soon as Paul does this, what he's trying to get them to see is this very much affects the way that you live and love with one another, which is why Paul will then talk about sin. But again, he wants to do this, not to describe to them like a list. So here's your list of moral codes that you must now follow as followers of Jesus. He doesn't do that, by the way. Even in, even in Corinthians, when he's addressing sin much more extensively than he does in Thessalonians, he doesn't give an exhaustive list. He never does in any of your New Testament, which is why it's sometimes frustrating for people as they're like, well, what, what, what do we do? Like, well, how do Christians respond in every single situation? Your New Testament is not abundantly clear on that. It's not. Like, Paul doesn't give you a list of like, he does give lists, but they're certainly not exhaustive. 
What Paul's wanting to do, just like he's not interested in explaining the Trinity intellectually, uh, he's wanting to explain the Trinity relationally. He's wanting them to start seeing sin relationally. Sin fractures your relationship with God. It fractures your relationships with one another, and it fractures your relationship with your own soul. So put it down because it's not good for you. And so Paul is going to start right before he begins to talk about uh, these things. And, we'll, and I'll, build a, I'll build a case for how Paul does this in the, over the next couple of verses here. But the first thing that Paul does is he wants to remind them, I want you to please God because you are living in Jesus Christ. This reality of a loving relational God that exists, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons worshiped as one God. That's what we affirm at Resource, what the church has always affirmed. These three living in loving harmony and faithful communion with one another, you are now in this. You are now participating in this. This spirit of God that flows forth is now in you. Your life is in this. Your reality is in this. The way that you treat one another is a part of this relationship now. The way that you live is now a part of this relationship. Even your sin, which you often think is more about you and sort of like your leverage or your position in society or your private little sin, nobody else has to know about. Paul's position now is that's no longer an option for you. Because your life has now entered into this loving, holy communion with the Father, the Son, and His Spirit. You now actively, joyfully, and peacefully get to participate in this with Him. And so Paul, what Paul's going to do, he'll do this in every single letter where he addresses sin. This is the first time he'll do this because this is one of his first letters. But the first thing he's going to do is I want you to see how your sin actually hampers or hinders your ability to love one another. I want you to start seeing your sin as relational, as something that is deeply connected to the people around you. And by the way, it's not good for you. It fractures the parts of your soul. It fractures parts of your heart. And it interferes with your intimacy with God. And he wants something better for you. So, so what does he start? He starts in verse 3. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable. Okay, so, so uh, Paul uh, immediately uses a bunch of really churchy words there that we're not always that comfortable or familiar with. So he uses the words like sanctified, um, holy, and honorable. What's Paul really driving at with these words? Okay, so, so the, the word sanctified uh, often means to be set apart in some kind of way. There's this idea that you've been set apart for something different. And so when he uses that word holy, he's drawing on the Old Testament use of holy, which was really this. It's not, by the way, so wait for me to build my whole case as we walk through Thessalonians, but holiness primarily does not have to do with morality in your Old Testament. It doesn't. It has to do with proximity to God. 
So when God's people become holy, they become holy as God sets up residence in them while they're walking through the desert after they've been liberated out of Egypt, right? The Ark of the Covenant, God's presence now resides among his people. Does morality matter? Absolutely. I'm not saying it doesn't matter. But what I am saying is in your Old Testament, holiness primarily deals with God's people's proximity to him. Or another way I'd like to say that is their relational intimacy with him, their relational wholeness with God. And so as Paul is saying, I want you to pursue holiness, what he's saying is, I want you to begin to see your life, you being set apart for relational intimacy, for relational proximity, if you will, for relational closeness to God. This is wholeness for you. This is joy for you. This is where you find who you were truly meant to be in the arms of Jesus. And so does morality matter? Yeah, absolutely. Like I'm not, please hear me say what, don't hear me say what I'm not saying. Um, But what I am driving at here is that for Paul primarily, sin is relational and he wants them to see that it fractures in ways that are detrimental to their own hearts. So he starts then uh, in verse six. Uh, uh, So we'll we'll start in verse five. Not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, And in this matter, no one should, listen to this, this is how Paul's summarizing why he wants them to consider um, how they treat one another sexually. In this way, in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all of those who commit such sins as we have told and warned you before. Okay, so, so what has Paul just said? All of this that I'm wanting you to do, all of the way that I want you to start rethinking your life, all of it comes down to I do not want you wronging your brothers and your sisters. I do not want you wronging one another. This is why Paul often with sexuality, he'll do it here. He does it in Galatians as well uh, and in Romans. For Paul, sexuality is often tied to lust. He talks about this lustful passion. What he's saying is, right, what is lust? It's this looking at this other person and saying, "Um, regardless of who you are, here's what I want to do to you. Sorry not to be too graphic, but we have kids programming now. So like, I don't have to worry. You used to have to really worry about this stuff. But that's that's what lust is. It's to look at another person and say, like, I have something in my heart that I want to act out towards you in some kind of way. Like, I want to look at you as leverage to fulfill my needs. For Paul, in almost every point in in Romans and Galatians and Corinthians and here in Thessalonians, when he mentions sexual immorality, he ties it quickly to lust, and he ties it quickly to lust because he sees lust as this place in which we look at another person and say, like, like, your needs, your wholeness, like who you are is less relevant to me as much as like what I get from you. That's what hookup culture is in our culture. This is why our culture has such an unhealthy view of sexuality. Like nobody walks into a bar and it's like, I don't know, who can I go home with tonight and make feel loved and safe and cherished and valued, right? Like 
That's not the, the objective. What you do when you're in a bar, like looking to hook up with, like you're looking at, okay, who's like the top specimen that I can end up with, most successful, most attractive, whatever, right? And I know I'm pushing a little bit. I want us to like grab here a little bit and see what Paul's driving at. He sees sexuality as this beautiful, powerful thing that can very easily and very quickly turn to be like taking advantage of someone. It's one of those things that very quickly and very easily you could start wronging one another. So do not take advantage of your brothers and sisters in this way. Do not look at them as moments in which you can achieve or gratify yourself in some kind of way or make yourself feel better in some kind of way. They're your brothers and sisters. Don't take advantage of them. So um, he then goes on to, and I want to I point this out briefly. Um, he, he then goes on to say, the Lord will punish all those who commit such sins. Uh, the literal translation of that, and I think the, the uh, CSB actually translates it this way, not the NIV, which we're using this morning, uh, is the, you literally could translate that the Lord is an avenger. Okay, so, so what does that mean? Paul's beginning to, sh- to show them this view of God's judgment and why we want it. Okay, so like, like the idea, like modern people in particular, like, I don't like the idea of God being a judge. Actually, you do. You don't like the idea of God being the judge that you've heard, and I understand that. Like, you're rightfully kind of repulsed, and like, I don't know, some of this doesn't make sense. But Paul's trying to get them to see something. When God judges, his primary concern is how have you loved one another? When Paul says he will punish those who commit such sins, he's not saying because, you know, they just couldn't, like, they didn't have enough self-control, and every Friday night, like, they just, they wanted to have fun and not be in church. Like, that's not his point. His point is Paul, God is looking at people who actively and willingly take advantage of one another. This grieves God's heart. And we want a God who is grieved by this. You do. Like you want a God who is grieved when someone takes the beautiful image of God and takes advantage of it in some kind of way, even if it's not sexual, like whatever it is. Like you want a God who is grieved by sin because God is love. Right? Like God's judgment, by the way, and we'll, we'll actually unpack this a little bit more. Uh, and I know I'm being a little theological with us this morning, but I want to do that because I want to help lay a, actual, a healthy foundation. Um, we often think of God's judgment uh, and God's love as kind of two separate things. Like God has to sort of be loving sometimes, but then he's got to put on the God pants and like be the judge at other times, right? This isn't an entirely human way of looking at God. Um, God can't be one thing in one moment and then not be that thing anymore. John tells us, and this is the, like John's letters are theological, by the way. He says, God is love. So, so one of the things that, um, uh, I don't know, this is one of the arguments I hear sometimes when we're talking about love and forgiveness. People always want to go, but also God is just. I hear what you're saying, but God's justice is his love. And his love is his justice. You see, God's not human like us. I'm not capable of perfect justice, which means when I get angry, I'm most likely going to be less loving. I'm passive aggressive sometimes. I can give my wife the silent treatment if I'm upset. Like, I give, like, like, I'm not capable of holding both justice and love together the way that God is. God's judgment is his love. 
His love is his judgment. There's never a point at which God's like, oh, man, I lost my temper again. I'm trying to work on that so hard. Like, there's never a point in like Old Testament, New Testament, wherever you read that God doesn't like, he acts more angrily and less lovingly. I want you to hear this for a second. His anger, even his righteous anger, is part of his love. Here's what that means. You can trust his judgment. because he loves you so fully. So one of the reasons we hate being judged is because judgment is never a full, like because we're used to being judged by humans and they never have a full picture, right? When somebody makes a judgment on you, one of your first, one of the first things you wanna do is like, but you don't understand where I'm coming from. You don't see how tired I was or how frustrated I was or how insecure I was when I said that or did that. Like you want them to see the full picture of who you are. That's how, like, the, like, we have this innate desire when we are judged to have, like, the full, like, a full defense. Like, I want you to see, that's what courts do, or at least what courts are supposed to do, by, like, by, both by prosecution and the defense. It's like, I want to show you a full picture of how this person ended up in this place or made this decision that they made. We want this in our own, like we do this all the time in our own marital conflicts or our own conflicts with friends or whoever. Like we want, like whenever someone's frustrated with us, the first thing we want to do is like offer our perspective on what happened. This is right and good and not wrong. But none of us are used to being judged by someone who fully and completely loves us. So in your New Testament, when God taught, when, when the writers often talk about uh, God's uh, um, judgment, the word can also be translated correction. You see, Paul looks at his people and says, I see what you can be, but you guys are clinging to things that aren't going to leave you at all satisfied or full. And I want to teach you to let go of that. And so when God judges, part of that, like that word can also be translated as part of that judgment is instruction, loving instruction. It is like, I have a daughter, she's three now, um, which means we're getting to the age where she can go into the freezer and get the ice cream and eat it without our permission, right? Or the cookies or whatever else. She knows where everything is in our house, like all the sweets. They're all hidden in different places now. Uh, and she finds them. I don't even know how. It's not like we show her. She just kind of knows innately. It's weird how kids know innately where you've hidden the stuff they're not supposed to have. Uh, but like, we're kind of getting to that age where it's like you can't have cookies before dinner. Right? But at some point, like, she wants to eat cookies before dinner. And like, we have to slightly, like, we patiently kind of redirect her or, or discipline her if you want to use that word. It's not really the right word because you can't really discipline a three-year-old. We're like, but we're trying to show her, like, it's not good always to have cookies before dinner. And we do this not out of sense of justice for the cookies. We're like, we don't really, that's not the issue. It's not that, like, we told you you couldn't have the cookie and then you directly disobeyed us and now we're angry because, like, we have less glucose in the house, like less carbohydrates around. Like that's, that's not our concern. Our concern is as you grow up, like you can't be someone that takes anything you want anytime you want. You won't be employable. Best case scenario. Worst case scenario, right? You'll end up incarcerated. Like that's like, we really want you to see like a healthy life for you involves you seeing our instructions. 
This is similar to God's view of you. Because by the way, God has an internal view of you. Okay, God knows who you're going to be a million years from now. And I believe with all, like, I know, how do we understand eternity and all that? Like, I want, you, I want you to see this for a second. You see yourself of like, you kind of, I hope I get to this place at the end of my life. You know, kind of see, here's my life goals. But I absolutely believe that you are an eternal soul that will live in holy and beautiful communion with God through all eternity. God sees where you will be a million years from now. I want you to see, like, he has a bigger picture of you than you have of yourself. So he sees the little things that your hearts and souls cling to that aren't good for you. And, and his loving instruction, he's like, I want to help, I want to help, I want to help pry that from you. Because a million years from now, right, like through eternity and loving communion with me, I see the beauty of all that you are because of all that I've created in you. So let me help begin to mold you and fashion you and shape you to look like that person. I see it. You don't always see it. So let me help, like, shape you. And this is where I'm absolutely convinced, uh, and John writes his gospel this way, like, you will never look at your life, even in the points in which God is instructing or you felt like this was, this was a tougher season in which God's showing you things, you will never look at, there will never be a point in your life where you will look at it and go, well, God wasn't as loving me as much as he could have there. You will never stand before him looking at the way that he's orchestrated your life and go, I don't know, I feel like he wasn't loving me as much as he could have there. Like it came short a little bit. He was too angry with me there. He was too harsh with me there. This is what God's judgment, and this is why, like I say, like you want a God who judges you because you want a God. Because when we say that, what we're saying is there's a God who sees you more fully and more completely than you see yourself, who loves you more than you could possibly know, who's trying to walk you through letting go of the things that are not good for you that are destroying your soul, that are making you live selfishly, like turning you inward, collapsing you in on yourself. This is why you actually want God's judgment. Now, like I said, I think we've often been taught God's judgment in a way that's sort of like God can, like when he's judging, he's not being loving. But I'm just like, I hope I'm building a case here. Like that's not how, like you can't have a God who at some point was this and not that because he's an infinite God. God's never going to look at some of his actions and be like, well, that was a little less loving and a little bit more harsh than I wanted. Like how we understand the nature of God. And I know I'm being theological this morning, but part of what I want to do is shape this a little bit to help us actually begin to trust God's judgment. Right? Begin to trust it and not fear it. Because by the way, Peter writes, perfect love casts out fear. Okay, like the, the full picture here is Peter's heart, Peter's hope, his focus, like in the New Testament, right? Isn't that you fear this, this God in this way, like you're afraid of all the, like him being unjust or unfair or being overly angry with you. Their hope is that you will begin to see that God who infinitely loves you has been shaping your heart and teaching you to let go of things, showing you how to let go of things that you never thought you could. That's what God's judgment is doing here. That's what Paul's wanting to do with his people here. 
Uh, he's wanting them to see, um, he, he says, God does not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. So another quick adage here that I want to just add, because some of you have been very hurt by this before. Um, so there was a movement, particularly in the 90s, kind of early 2000s, of like sexual purity. Uh, and then a lot of like teaching a lot of high school kids, like how to remain sexually pure uh, until they were married, these kinds of things. Um, that, that was taken from First Thessalonians 4, whether they realized it or not, because this is the only part in all of your New Testament where Paul talks about sexual purity. Um, but I actually think it was a really misuse of that word, exegetically speaking. So when Paul talks of purity, he's appealing to, again, Paul is a Jew, writing as a Jew, like his history is Jewish. Uh, he's writing about purity laws in Leviticus. Those purity laws in Leviticus, I'm not going to bore you with the, all of that, other than to say that like the main distinction between pure and impure in Leviticus was not moral, was not sin. There were lots of things that you had to do in life where you would be considered impure, and they were just part of life. What the purity laws in Leviticus signified was life and death. And when something became impure, it was often because it was meant for life, but had been contaminated or exposed to death in some kind of way. So like if you, had, uh, you weren't allowed to touch a corpse, you would become impure. Well, everybody had to touch corpse at some point. Your parents would die. You'd have to bury your parents, like respect for them. You would treat the body and bury it. So, so, so you weren't then treated as sinful when you were impure. You had to go through the purity rituals, and then eventually you were inaugurated back into the worship. What they were doing, what Paul was instructing his people, is there's life and there's death. And I am a God of life. I want fullness and wholeness for you. Remember, he's taking a people who live in a very ancient world tens of thousands of years ago. They're violent. They're barbaric. They're used to things like child sacrifice, and a loving God is stepping into their world and trying to shape and sh like help them see that he is good and holy and right. And he starts doing this through these instructions of purity laws. And what he's doing is he's trying to teach his people, my instructions for you bring life to you. That's what I'm doing here, right? And so he starts delineating between impure and pure as, and basically is, is delineations between life and death. And so when Paul uses this term, I want you to pursue sexual purity. You can't say that it's used morally here. I'm, like exegetically speaking, it's a misuse of the word in Leviticus That's because those weren't what the purity laws were designed for. They were designed for life and death. What Paul's saying is, I want you to pursue sexuality that leads to life. I want you to start seeing the way that you love one another in a covenantal commitment. Like, I want you to see that the way that you love one another can either bring life or it can bring death. The way that you use one another sexually can either bring life or it can bring death. The way that you treat and relate to one another brings life or it brings death. That's what Paul's trying to get at when he uses that term. I want you to start seeing that there are ways in which you can pursue wholeness and goodness, and there are ways in which you, um, if you, you can pursue your own selfish interests, and one leads to life and one leads to death, and you're a people of God called by His Spirit, so start pursuing life with the way that you love and care for one another, the way that you relate to one another. Don't take advantage of your brothers and sisters. Start seeing every part of your life, including your sexual ethics, as something in which can bring life or can bring death. This is what Paul's wanting them to see here. 
Um, we're going to end. Uh, so we're going to skip. I told you we're going to jump into Romans uh, AV. We're going to skip down to verse 9, actually, because um, we're almost out of time this morning. Um, starting in verse 9, Paul will again affirm what he's, what he's wanting here. Now, about your love for one another, we do not need to write you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. Here's Paul's summary. You have been taught by God to love one another. That word is translated as actually the one word, and it's the only time in all the ancient world we have this word. It's God taught. God has taught you. What he's saying is this. You have been gifted. Let's go back to Paul's theology of Trinity. You have been gifted in this loving relationship with God, Father, Son, and Spirit. His Spirit is a gift to you. And it teaches you. It shapes you. So learn to listen to it. And by the way, this spirit is active in your life, and it's going to be active in the lives of your brothers and sisters. This is why you're not supposed to wrong them. Because what the spirit is doing in their life is something that you may need to hear as well. The spirit's movement in their life is something that shapes you as well. You are God-taught to love one another. Here's what Paul's saying. This loving Trinity has shaped you in a way that only it can, only the Father, the Son, and the Spirit can, to love one another, to start seeing your sin uh, relationally. Like, this is something that the Spirit teaches you, okay? This is something that begins to shape you and open your eyes to things that you didn't quite see before. You need the Spirit to teach you that. Paul makes that same argument uh, in Romans, and he'll do it. And we'll, so we're going to skip down to those last two slides in Corinthians. He'll use this again in Corinthians, which he again will address sin. Um, he does it in a much bigger way in Corinthians because Corinthians community was uh, like they just they had all kinds of problems. Uh, he writes the letter because someone in the community was sleeping with their stepmom. So like like you can see like how far like Paul has to walk them in Corinthians, but he says the same exact thing right before he goes into all of this again. Paul will say this. He said, what we've received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit of the one who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the spirit, explaining spiritual realities with spirit-taught words, okay? So Paul's, Paul's whole view here um, is that the spirit brings joy and it brings peace. Sorry, y'all, I'm making this hard on y'all. We're gonna go to Romans. We're gonna end on this one. Paul here is again, he's actually speaking of another argument here. Like when he says the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, he's talking to a group of people that were arguing with each other about what's the right things to eat. They're trying to fit all of these kind of moral codes into their, their diets. Paul says, you're, you're missing the point. You're trying to like categorize what sins and all of this. Here's, here's what, you're missing the point. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of deliverance and peace. Listen to this, and peace and joy through the Holy Spirit. You see, Paul's end game here isn't to teach them an exhausted list of moral codes. Your Bible doesn't, your New Testament doesn't do that. Paul's goal here is to get them to live in the joy and the peace that's being freely and available, avail, like offered to them as a gift that he uses in, he says in Corinthians, as a gift. I want you to live in this joy and this peace. 
I want you to start thinking of what is life-giving and what is not life-giving. I want you to start thinking about relationally, like how do I love and serve the people around me, my spouse, my kids, my brothers and sisters in my church. This is what God's aim here is. This is what his heart for you is. The kingdom of God, Paul says, is the joy and the peace that we receive through the Holy Spirit. Deliverance, Paul uses this word. And so as, as I think of like, how do, how do we, what do we want to be as a church? Um, we'll talk a little bit more about that afterwards. We're going to do pizza with the pastors. Um, you'll get to meet the staff and one another as well. Um, but, but part of um, what I want for us as a church is I want us to be a church that is delivered by the Spirit, full of joy and peace, a church that listens to the Spirit, a church that when we're trying to figure out, like, how do I relate to someone, either financially, relationally, sexually, or any other, like any of the other ways in which humans relate to one another, how do I do this in a way that brings love and joy and peace? Because this is what the Spirit of God is. This is what God has been delivering me for. Life, not death. Wholeness, peace, and joy, not manipulation, not using, not taking advantage. And if I'll trust that, maybe then I can begin to set down some of the things in my own heart that I've clinged to because I think there's life there. Let me pray for us, uh, and we'll close for today. Father, we love you. Um, we admit that we are um, a people that are inherently selfish or inherently we we think of how do we satisfy our own longings way before we'll ever think of satisfying other people um, or caring for them or living a life that's pleasing to your spirit. So, Father, would you help us? Would you forgive us? Would you have real mercy on us for the ways that our, our spirits pursue um, other people for selfish means or selfish ends? For the ways that your spirit... Um, for the ways that we resist your spirit and what it's teaching us. Father, we admit that we are um, so unable on our own to be able to um, actually love one another. We are so unable on our own to actually love you. We're so uh, addicted to our own sin. We're so addicted to our own selfishness. We're so afraid to let go of our own self-preservation that we miss it. So, Father, would you humble our hearts? Would you show us that, like, you have life for us? You have joy, you have peace, you have love. What do you want? Father, help us to see our lives as wholeness and proximity to you, nearness to you, and your goodness. We love you, Father, and we need you. We pray all of these things in your name. Amen.